Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Nate Jones of the National Security Archive details a brief history of a key law for government transparency. Cato's Doug Bandow details how the U.S. should cautiously engage with North Korea. Former Congressman and Cato scholar Jim Backus tells us what John Stuart Mill knew about trade. And Cato's Michael Tanner discusses how to create an inclusive economy. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. You may have heard of Chevron deference. This is the idea that courts generally give a little wider berth to agencies when it comes to interpreting statutes when they are crafting regulations. Uh, but you may not have heard of our deference, which is a, an odd spelling, not like your deference, my deference, our deference is spelled differently. And a case at the US Supreme Court this term has the potential to reshape uh, that kind of deference that courts give to administrative agencies. Here to talk about this is Ilya Shapiro, director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute, and Will Yateman, a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having us. So let's uh, let's begin here, uh, Ilya. Chevron deference, and these these things are related, but they're not the same. So so what is Chevron deference in general? Right. The nomenclature is isn't important, uh, especially if you're not a lawyer. But the idea is, uh, it's impossible for Congress to legislate on each and every little jot and tittle of the modern government, the modern administrative state. Uh, and courts can't be policing all those little regulatory things. And so courts will defer to agencies in their interpretations of statutes uh, unless they are arbitrary and capricious. So basically, courts aren't going to decide what is the best way of interpreting a statute. As long as the agency hasn't gone crazy, it'll allow it to do what it's doing. That is Chevron deference. What we're talking about now goes a further level, a second derivative, uh, if you will, uh, when an agency promulgates a regulation, maybe 10 years later, five years later, different agency, they, they were different people in charge. They want to do something different and they decide, well, that previous regulation, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of ambiguous. We're going to interpret it a different way, our own regulation. Okay. So this is not interpreting a vague, uh, or broad or ambiguous congressional statute, which has its own uh, problems, both in terms of legislative practice and what the agency is doing. Here, it's the agency has issued a regulation, and then later, the agency discovers, oh, that regulation that we issued was really ambiguous. We're just going to change policy without uh, without so much as uh, issuing a, a, a new regulation. All right. And to you, uh, Will, the, the way in which regulations get crafted and released by federal administrative agencies there are procedures in place to give the public, interested parties, an opportunity to make comments uh, in advance of those regulations being put into the record. Indeed. Well, that really gets to the heart um, of the problems with our deference. Um, just that. The but I, I want to want to clarify. So you know, we have this process, this notice and comment period when regulations have been drafted but not yet been adopted. What does that do? What function does that perform? Oh, well, the processes you speak of um, are, were created by the 1946 Administrative Procedure Act. And with that, what Congress was trying to do was establish sort of a template um, for agency action that would provide public notice and input into these rules that ultimately carry the force and effect of law. Um, so what you speak about, these Administrative Procedure Act Section 553 procedures. Um, for those of you following along at home. <laughs> exactly. For, uh, you know, for the precise amongst us. But they really get to kind of uh, questions of accountability and notice, sort of fundamental questions, the legitimacy of administrative policymaking. So that is the purpose of the protections about which you speak. Okay. Now, our deference, the idea that courts give deference to agencies when they are interpreting their own statutes or their own regulations, regulations uh, this seems to this would seem to avoid entirely some of what you would expect to be uh, public notice, accepting public comments, and it, it seems to be opaque almost completely. You hit the nail on the head. Um, what our ultimately allows agencies to do is to elide these processes, is to avoid them. 
Um, the, the best way to explain this is that agencies will release avowedly non-binding documents. They will say, these do not bind the public. We want to be clear. Um, these are merely advisory. Then they'll go to court um, and seek this hour deference and receive ultimately a court order that lends this document the force and effect of law. So it's this sort of this uh, sleight of hand almost, if you will, by which they can, again, uh, promulgate a document that they say, this does not bind people. And then somehow magically through the process of judicial review, end up with a legally binding document. And so, our itself, to be clear, which is spelled A-U-E-R, uh, our itself was deference to an amicus brief that the agency filed. I mean, I'd love to get you know deferred to for my amicus briefs, uh, but here an agency for the first time took a new policy position in an amicus brief and ultimately the court uh, gave it the full weight of law. And the party uh, you know, trying to get relief from the government is left shaking its head saying, how am I supposed to, you know, during the course of litigation, the agency promulgated this new regulation of my amicus brief and the courts uh, let it go ahead. In some ways, I mean, the agency there gets to change the rules of the game. On the fly. So what, is, what are the practical effects of that for someone out in the private sector or, you know, some other government that's trying to comply with federal regulation, it, you know, in good faith. This this is the key thing. You know, we're not talking about this just to be uh, legalistic and and uh, academic to make sure that all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. Uh, this has a tremendous effect on regulated industries, businesses of various kinds, individuals who want to uh, 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 build things. If you're talking about a property developer with an environmental review, uh, the whole host of areas where the modern federal government regulates, and the same thing happens at state governments with the equivalent uh, uh, deference doctrines there, although some states have been pairing those back. Uh, and so the reason why this uh, sounds kind of technical but is hugely important is because what kind of accountability, what kind of process do we have in place for these government agencies to make decisions uh, that have extreme repercussions, both in terms of uh, money and freedom uh, across a range of human endeavor in this country? I would just uh, add on to that. With respect to the notion of what Ilya was talking about, this is quintessential regulatory uncertainty. That is, uh, you'll see that term bandied about often in debates inside the Beltway, um, tethered to no meaning. In this instance, the, that's, it, it, it indeed means exactly what it's, you know, it's just that, regulatory uncertainty. It's, you cannot rely on uh, uh, an accepted meaning of these rules, again, to which you're bound. Um, that everyone can point to and say that's what it means. I mean, and again, you're under threat of penalty or under threat of losing out on public benefits. It's occurred in Kaiser. I'll also note Ilya had pointed to our the the, the namesake of this doctrine as being an example of of how it undermines procedural safeguards. This case as well, Kaiser v. Wilkie demonstrates the same phenomenon. Um, you know, at issue is the term relevance within the rules of procedure for these administrative adjudications before the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. Quite reasonably, um, Mr. Kaiser takes it uh, takes relevance to have the same meaning that it does in the federal rules of evidence, which is a, a, a judicial touchstone known to all lawyers and all legal practitioners. Um, nonetheless, the agency, it announced its interpretation of relevance only on its own accord, unprompted by anyone else in the final decision. It, it could have done so in 2006 when the agency last amended its rules of procedure, but it failed to do so. Um, so th that's the sort of uh, the procedural problem, the, the circumventing of procedural safeguards that was at hand, not just an hour, but also in the in the controversy at hand. So in many in many cases, uh, Ilya, there are agencies that uh, want a decision uh, regarding some question that's being put to them to go a certain way, to the extent that there are regulations where they can alter the their own interpretation of those regulations, they don't have to tip their hand until a decision is rendered. That's right. And and as Will said, these decisions can be done in informal policy documents and guidance documents that eventually the court gives uh, binding uh, a deference to. And, and the reason why we have deference doctrines is because courts think, aha, these agencies are doing tremendously complicated kind of work. Who are we as judges 
to second guess what that biological determination might be or the econometric uh, study or these things on which the agencies have expertise. We'll just defer to their uh, expertise. And the problem comes in, especially when, like in the Kaiser case, it's the definition of the legal term of art relevance uh, or many other cases where it's simply the agency's lawyers determining what their operative statute or what their operative regulations mean. Well, their lawyers are no more or less expert than any other kind of lawyers, including uh, Article Three judges. And that's why it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, Will has done a lot of uh, uh, looking into the, uh, the, the U.S. government's brief in this case, which took uh, an, uh, an interesting tack uh, that I hope uh, you'll talk about. It took an extraordinary tack. The, for the first time, an unprecedented attack, if you will. The, it's the first SG brief, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Solicitor General, and that is the government entity within the Department of Justice that files Supreme Court brief briefs on behalf of the government. It's the first time I've ever seen a Solicitor General brief um, that concedes, that, that, that concedes governmental power, that, that says almost, or, no, that, that says we have too much. I mean, this is um, it's the executive branch voluntarily giving away power. I mean, it's really unprecedented. It's extraordinary. I mean, at the end of the day, our deference is meant to facilitate administrative policymaking. It's meant to make it easier. And yet, in its brief before the Supreme Court in Kaiser, the government says, look, we admit, we concede that it engenders these, uh, admit these procedural shortcuts, that it, that it has had this harmful effect by allowing agencies to circumvent um, these procedural requirements that we spoke of before. It then proceeds to to recommend how to narrow the doctrine. It 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 says that um, it were the when the government is being inconsistent with its interpretation, when it, when it has changed interpretations, um, when it is being inexpert, um, that is when it is dealing with a subject that is not necessarily within the agency's wheelhouse, um, when the promulgation, when the issuance comes from somebody other than the agency head, um, in all three instances, our deference is inappropriate. In particular, that first one, interpretive consistency, that is huge. That is a really big deal. Um, and for the government to do that, to what is, you know, what Ilya and I both agree is the correct position. I mean, it's, he's not all the way there. He's not disavowing the doctrine, which is what we ultimately argue for in our brief, but he gets about two thirds of the way there. And that's pretty darn amazing. So what does it mean uh, when these agencies retain this power who practically holds that power? Is it the president of the United States? Is it the individual heads of these agencies to uh, direct the, the lawyers, hang on to this authority, but we don't care about this one? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. And there's uh, been a whole host of litigation about the presidential appointment power, the presidential removal power, how uh, insulated are the uh, heads of agencies from the president and ultimate accountability. Um, you know the the short answer is yes. Ultimately, it's the president. If the president wants to remove the secretary of education, he can. Um, uh, but some of these regulations can't be swept away just by the by the sweep of a presidential hand or or a pen and phone tweet or or what have you, uh, because of these rulemaking processes. Uh, so ultimately, the the agency heads are indeed or are supposed to be uh, accountable to the president. It's one executive branch, not multiple ones split up among the various uh, departments. But that doesn't mean the president gets to do whatever he wants. To be clear on that point, that's one of the primary policy justifications for our is that uh, agencies, by virtue of their electoral connection to the president, by, by virtue of their accountability and responsiveness to the president's removal power, are more accountable relative to judges and therefore are in a, a more appropriate place for administrative policymaking. I'm not, you know, the, there are counter arguments um, that, again, we bring up on our brief and ultimately I think that our doctrine is um, undermine separation separation of powers principles and is is ultimately a, has an inimical effect upon sound policymaking. Nonetheless, with apropos directly to your question, yes, it is very much bound up into the notion that the president ultimately is boss. The Cato Institute, of course, has uh, filed a brief in this uh, very important case. Will, uh, what is the essential argument that uh, Cato makes? You, you mentioned I believe this is actually the very first assignment I gave Will once he came aboard uh, early this uh, new year, 2019. Oh, we got this Kaiser case, administrative law. That's your bailiwick. Write this brief. It just so happens that I had written a law school note, a law school review note on this very subject. So I, I was, I guess, it is directly within my wheelhouse. Our brief covers the grounds why our is inappropriate. Um, to begin with, it, it contravenes 
principles of separated powers. I mean, with, the, with our, you've got the executive branch not just writing the law, playing the role of lawmaker, but also interpreting the law, the, um, you know, pl- performing this judicial function. So the, to the extent that both of these functions, the legislative function and the judicial function are bound in the executive branch by virtue of this doctrine, that raises all sorts of, of red flags. It also leads directly to the policy problems, um, you know, about which we spoke. That the extent to which it allows agencies to to undermine the Administrative Procedure Act by circumventing these procedural safeguards that are crucial for public notice and public participation into these rules. Uh, we further note um, the, the uh, we further note we further rebut claims made by our's proponents. They, a, a primary one being that they say, were you to disrupt our doctrine, Supreme Court. You would engender also untold. Uh, uh, you would royal courts and uh, courts and uh, administrative agencies by by upturning, overturning, disrupting thousands of of regulatory interpretations. You know, across the thirteen circuit courts. It just so happens that the aforementioned research, the law school, the law review note that I, I spoke of, I performed a, a empirical research on this very question. I reviewed twenty years worth of of our deference being applied before um, the 13 circuit courts, more than 400 cases from 1993 to 2013. The upshot is with this information, I was able to create a simple model um, to project the, the administrative burdens of, of overturning our. Long story short, over the course of 20 years, you're talking about about 50, 53 to be exact, interpretations that would have changed you know, from the government winning to the government losing if the Supreme Court decides to reform our. That's 53 um, controversies over, but you know, between 13 circuit courts over 20 years. That's just not a big number. You're not talking about the sort of astronomical, heavy administrative burden that our proponents would have you believe. Now, uh, to the extent, though, that uh, this case establishes that administrative agencies should not have this authority to you know, essentially withhold information until they've decided how they're going to interpret their own regulations or to tip their hand only at the last minute and then immediately have their interpretation given the force of law. Does that implicate Chevron? Does that implicate this other kind of deference that uh, courts have also given to administrative agencies? They're separate doctrines uh, in the sense that in the one case, it's Congress itself legislating, which, you know, is duly legislative power, whether we like it or not. And there could be problems there in terms of uh, delegating too much authority to the executive, but that's a separate issue. Uh, with, with our, it's the agency acting itself and then reconsidering its own views. It's kind of uh, you know deference cubed, uh, uh, if you will, not based in legislation, based in their own regulatory authority. And so they get some sort of more power, more deference because they were ambiguous in the first place. That really, uh, uh, really doesn't make sense. That's the a point we bring up in the brief. The, the crucial, to, by no means are we champions of Chevron, but Chevron doesn't engender the same sorts of separation of powers concerns. It, it engenders its own separation of powers concerns, but ones that are independent from our, in that it doesn't um, combine this this lawmaking and law interpretation function in the executive in addition to their having wholly independent bases. And, and to be clear, both Chevron and our uh, don't necessarily have an ideological salience. Uh, an agency could be uh, promulgating, uh, you know, so so-called conservative regulations. It could be promulgating so-called progressive ones. And the only issue is is structural and institutional. How much should that uh, third branch, the the judiciary, defer to the executive branch in these kinds of agency determinations? All right. So, the Kaiser case. Uh, how detailed do you want to get in terms of the facts of this case? The the issue here is the definition of the word relevance and the agency has decided it means this and not this. It refers to these things and not these things. In, we're talking about two layers of administrative appeals um, and then two layers of, of- For VA benefits. For VA benefits and then a layer of review by an Article I court and then a layer of review by an Article Three appellate court. So to th- we probably don't want to jump into that. The crucial point would be, one, the term relevance isn't necessarily within or outside of, an, of a court's wheelhouse. I mean, that relevance is pretty a, a core legal concept that is well within a court's purview. So within, within this context specifically, a court shouldn't defer 
just by virtue of the fact that we're defining a term that is widely used within the law? In this context specifically, the agency expertise rationale for deference, for deferring, that is, you know, the agency, they're full of all the, the technicians and the scientists, therefore they have the expertise, it doesn't apply. We're talking about the term relevance as it applies to adjudications, which is well within a court's ballywick. So, it, you know, the, as you might expect, administrative agencies are saying this will be, uh, you know, a shattering, you know, earthquaking uh, decision if it goes against us. But they're not. That was that gets back to this amazing government brief. Why? Why did the government write the brief the way it did? I would like to believe it isn't a true instance. Oops, let me put it this way: the SG, the Solicitor General, operates with a certain amount of independence. Nonetheless, it is it is always respected and been well aware of of institutional prerogatives of the President of the White House. That is to say, it has been a champion of executive power. For, for the for the Solicitor General. To issue this brief, which again, to my knowledge, is unprecedented. They're, they're in essence saying we have too much power. We've abused it in the past. I can only imagine they did so with the go-ahead with the green light from the White House. And while it, it's very, it's true that I've had many problems with the way this White House has exercised executive power, I'd like to believe this is an instance of a genuine application of the take care of its duty to take care that the law is faithfully executed and that they're doing the right thing here. That's not to say they haven't done the wrong thing in a lot of contexts. To put it more here. personally, uh, I know Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General. I'm, I'm confident that this brief uh, jibes fairly closely to what he himself believes as a matter of, of legal philosophy and constitutional interpretation uh, and uh, to the extent that he convinced uh, his White House bosses uh, and the Attorney General uh, that uh, this is a way to drain the swamp, then that aligns with that kind of uh, global motto uh, of this particular administration. To be clear, if I just may jump in there, you would agree though 100% that this would not have occurred without the White House saying, okay. Absolutely. This is not some, some rogue Justice Department or rogue Solicitor General. Sounds to me like the SG's client is not getting a vigorous defense, guys. <laughs> not zealous. <laughs> you know, this case could end up being the most significant case of this term, even if it won't necessarily make front page news. Uh, the term is, is sort of low key. Uh, a lot of bigger issues are just uh, I've been pushed to, to next term, Second Amendment, certain other things, the uh, you know, immigration emergency wall thing. Who knows when that all is going to be decided. Uh, but this could change the structure of judicial interpretation of agency action. Uh, in a way, in a, in a case that does not have political salience, VA benefits, rather than uh, a few years ago, this came up in the context of transgender access to bathrooms, which is obviously a hotter issue in the in the culture wars. And so it's it's interesting whenever the justices seriously look to change the direction of important doctrine, and it comes up in a context uh, that is uh, divorced from uh, any kind of uh, political controversy. Uh, that's the time when when real lawyering and and uh, and judging uh, uh, can be done, and you know perhaps this is a case where this hour deference might become minute deference. Now let's say. <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you don't, the, uh, please don't encourage him. <laughs> <laughs> the extent to which this case, let's say, it's nine to nothing in favor of uh, eliminating this doctrine of hour deference. How does that change regulation? Does regulation just become clearer, uh, maybe a little longer uh, to the extent that the agency no longer has this special authority to interpret it this way versus that way and they can just clearly say, oh yeah, we clearly mean this? So two things. First, there's an incentive for the agency to write clear regulations because of course the only time that an agency can reconsider its previous rule and a court to defer to that reinterpretation is when the previous rule was ambiguous to begin with. So uh, that, that'll be the incentive. And then secondly, uh, yeah, there won't be on the fly changes of policy. If the agency wants to change its rule, it's going to have to uh, go through the, the full process and then the notice and the public comment and you know press attention and, and all the rest of it. If I may further clarify or, or lend a further observation, I see it having its largest impact in the beginning of a presidential term and the end of a presidential term. Uh, in particular, in the beginning when it's a changeover from parties, uh, 
To date, the norm has been to issue a bunch of guidance documents, to issue a bunch of advisory opinions and thereby try to hold up what the prior administration has done while you can perform you know, the, the appropriate steps in order to overturn it officially. In the final months of administration, they just don't have time. It's the lame duck and they're trying to push stuff out the door. Um, I see in, in both cases, there tend to be issues with sound administrative policymaking in both those contexts. So I see it having a, not an overwhelming effect. I mean, again, that gets to our original point that it's not going to engender some sort of huge administrative burden. But at the margin, having an important effect at these, during these two times when administrative policymaking tends to be at its nadir in terms of quality. All right. We're going to close it up there. The case, of course, is Kaiser v. Wilkie uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court this Argument term. to be held the end of March. It will be, according to Ilya Shapiro, the blockbuster case of this term, even if it doesn't make front page news because it will change a lot about how regulating gets done in the United States. And you can read our brief and some of uh, Cato's uh, opinions on the case at our website, Cato.org. A great deal of important government information has been uncovered with the Freedom of Information Act, a law giving timelines and structure to public requests for government data. At a February Cato Institute event on the Freedom of Information Act, Nate Jones, director of the Freedom of Information Act project for the National Security Archive, detailed some of the unknown and unsung history of a landmark law for government transparency. The first Freedom of Information Act and the most recent FOIA amendments in 2016 have at least one thing in common. The U.S. Department of Justice, which is in charge with administering the FOIA, actually uh, tried to block both of them from happening. When the first FOIA amendments were passed in 1966, the Department of Justice wrote that in their belief, um, these, this bill would have been unconstitutional. Um, but, thank heavens, it passed anyways, uh, was signed into law. Um, it was the efforts of a California Republican who actually uh, first was a Republican and then switched to being a Democrat, John, Ma John Moss, a representative, and it was very much his struggle. Um, and that's the first FOIA. Uh, but the Freedom of Information Act that passed in 66 really had far more less teeth than we even have today. Um, and a lot of people in the FOIA industry joke that the real FOIA was actually passed in 74. Um, something interesting about that is one of the co-sponsors of the 66 FOIA, a Republican congressman called uh, Don Rumsfeld from Illinois, ended up at the Ford White House, and he and... His uh, underling, uh, Dick Cheney, um, <laughs> vociferously lobbied Ford to veto the 74 amendments, which put teeth into paying some attorney's fees, a little bit of leeway on um, uh, timelines and other improvements. Uh, Ford took the bad advice of his underlings and vetoed the 74 amendments, uh, only to have them overridden. Um, one other interesting footnote on this is there was another character in the Ford administration. Actually, he was at DOJ at the time. Antonin Scalia, young guy. He, we have the records on National Security Archive's website, he was worried that agencies weren't doing enough to call the White House and oppose enough. So he sent two frantic phone calls to the CIA saying, if you don't call today, the White House might not veto. They, call, they called, um, they apparently got the White House to veto. But the last record from that, that kind of foreshadow some of the problems we're going to talk about is that um, Scalia advised the White House that don't work with Congress to compromise. We want this law to be, quote, as bad as possible. So when you have an executive branch backed by the Department of Justice working to make access to information, quote, as bad as possible, you see some of the problems we have today. That's not to say that I, I like to call FOIA colossus um, that's under assault. It still has great power. Uh, finishing up there are a series of amendments in the 80s that actually, um, I would say, weakened the FOIA. Um, huge amendments for uh, law enforcement cutouts and for uh, CIA operational files exemption, which we can talk about. I think the, one of the worst, that would be the worst exemption of all time, amendments of all time. And then uh, in 2006, they were strengthened with the eFOIA amendments that did a lot of the stuff that put um, data and reporting 
and in theory was supposed to put the documents online. Um, we're still working towards that. And then most recently in 2016, um, which did a lot more tightening up. Um, it's still, now it's kind of up to the courts, but may have established a type of harm standard where judges have some leeway essentially to say to agencies, that doesn't pass the laugh test, even though it's technically, you can withhold it, um, let it go. Uh, and then my favorite as a historian, this terrible, terrible exemption five, which some people say is to withhold it because you want to, deliberative process of exemption now stops at 25 years, which is probably too late, but better than never. So um, the huge boon for the historians. What do the U.S. and North Korea want from each other? And what is the proper role of the U.S. in fostering peace? In February, Cato's Doug Bandow went to Capitol Hill to give his perspective on what the United States should be seeking and what the U.S. should reasonably expect. A little more than a year ago, we had the president threatening fire and fury, sounding very much like the North Koreans had over the years. I mean, one of the... My favorite slogans of the North Koreans was they planned on turning Seoul into a lake of fire. I mean, the imagery has always been there, and suddenly we had an American returning that. My South Korean friends were a little bit nervous, wondering why the U.S. president sounded like the North Koreans. And I had a friend come up to me in church and ask me if we were going to have a nuclear war. First time I've ever been asked that question. <clears throat> uh, but thankfully, uh, that all kind of went away. And if you look at the last year, there's been nothing. <clears throat> that in terms of, you know, none of that kind of rhetoric, none of the threats, none of the, the fear-mongering, it's certainly been a very much a change in atmosphere. Indeed, the president has informed us that uh, he fell in love with Kim Jong-un. I don't know if he's mentioned that to Melania, exactly how the threesome works out, you know, but nevertheless, I think this has been a very good time for us, that, you know, we've had, uh, you know, rising threats, fear of war, et cetera, and then all of a sudden we're having talking and discussion. <clears throat> Now, there's been real concern that we haven't seen much denuclearization over the last year, and it'll be interesting to see if we get kind of a reboot at the upcoming summit in Hanoi. There's certainly an opportunity there. I think it's, it's a positive development despite some of the frustrations that people have. To my mind, looking ahead, the critical issue really is expectations. You know, what are our objectives? Clearly, the objective of the United States, at least officially, is denuclearization. We want uh, you know, to get complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. It's a wonderful objective. We all would love to have that. It's certainly worthwhile for the United States, but I do think it's important, as we have this discussion, to realize that in some sense, you know, North Korea really is not a threat to the United States. That is, unless we actually believe that the North Koreans are completely suicidal, Kim Jong-un is not going to lose you know, one, two, three, half dozen, whatever number he might have that might hit something. He's not going to lose those at the United States because he realizes that the lake of fire would be visited upon North Korea, not the United States. I like to tell people that you know, I've had meetings enough and watched the behavior of the North Koreans. You know, the North Korean uh, leaders, uh, you know, Kim, uh, all three Kims, I think, have wanted their virgins in this world, not the next. Kim Jong-un is not sitting around hoping to go out in a radioactive funeral pyre in Pyongyang. That's really not his objective. So the reality is that the North Koreans, in my view, ultimately are after deterrence themselves as opposed to uh, attacking the United States. <clears throat> While from an American standpoint, there's still good reason not to want them to have nuclear weapons. It is a bit different than uh, the fear of the Soviet Union having nuclear weapons, which we once confronted where a man named Joseph Stalin ran the Soviet Union, one of the great monsters of, of humankind, and had nuclear weapons. And he was followed, of course, by Mao Zedong and the People's Republic of China that also got nuclear weapons where we actually considered pre uh, preventative war very seriously under both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. So when we're thinking about North Korea from an American standpoint, at some level denuclearization, while a useful objective, you know, is not quite the same vital objective. It matters uh, off, an awful lot to South Korea because South Korea is much closer and much more concerned about weapons. Uh, but I think the real issue is the North Koreans. You know, if you want regime survival, nuclear weapons are perhaps the only mechanism you have for regime survival. The United States has, I think, unintentionally created a very perverse incentive structure if you wander around the world blowing up, destroying, invading, and occupying countries you don't like, people look for ways to prevent that. 
And if you're sitting in Pyongyang and you watch Afghanistan and Serbia is dismantled and Saddam Hussein ends up pulled out of the hole and hung, uh, you know, the Ukraine, which gave up its nuclear weapons, you know, found that nobody was willing to come and defend it when it ran into trouble with Russia. And my favorite, of course, is Libya, where, in fact, you give up your nuclear weapons and missiles. <clears throat> and the end game, if any of you want to go to YouTube, you can see it. You get pulled out of the storm grate by the uh, insurgents, and you come to a rather unpleasant end. The point is nuclear weapons are a very useful mechanism of regime survival. I think the North Koreans view it that way. So to my mind, in terms of objectives, it's important not, not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That is, I want denuclearization, but if I can't get that, there's a lot of other stuff I'd also like to have. And I think the critical thing we need to be looking at is, are there steps, mechanisms, processes, whatever, that we can get that help create a peninsula that is more peaceful and more stable and less likely to be at war? And, you know, the starting point is no testing. I think that's a very good one. Looking at reduced capacity of uh, the North to produce nuclear materials, getting inspectors in in some form, some kinds of transparency. There are a number of things that we should be looking for, aiming to do, including trying to reduce a North Korean sense of insecurity. And I say this recognizing that very hard to know exactly what the North thinks, very hard to distinguish between what's real and what's fake, you know, this is a regime for which propaganda obviously is a very important uh, tool. Nevertheless, it would not be unreasonable to assume that if you're sitting in Pyongyang and you look at the world around you, you realize that the correlation of forces has moved rather badly for you. That in 1950, your granddad launches a war and almost wins, and you're backed by the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Today, you live in a world where essentially you're on your own. South Korea has 50 times your economic strength. And then there's that great power across the ocean that can send one carrier group off your shore, and it's probably a greater firepower than your entire military. You know, the, from a North Korean standpoint, there is, I think, genuine insecurity. Then the question is, how do you try to you know, deal with that as well as their, their capabilities? And there are no good options. You know, <clears throat> some people talk about war. <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham, whose offices are fairly close to this office building on the other side of the hill, Senator Graham said that, uh, well, we'd probably have to go to war there, but you know, that's okay because the war would be, quote, over there, unquote. The war would not be, quote, over here, unquote. Now, my friends who live in Seoul weren't entirely reassured by that notion of the <clears throat> war being over there. And of course, any particular day, there are 250,000 Americans in South Korea as you know, either soldiers or dependents or students or business people. And of course, the U.S. would be involved. But war would be an extraordinary roll of the dice. It'd be utterly foolish. We've kept the peace for 70 years. The idea of risking that, I think, would be foolish. Sanctions may be helpful as part of a process, but we should have no illusions there that the survival of the regime matters more than economics. And of course, in the late 1990s, at least a half million North Koreans starved of, star of famine, died to death, you know, died, and unfortunately, it didn't change regime policy. The father of the current ruler was not particularly concerned about what happened to people in the countryside. Maximum pressure, I think, as a policy is essentially dead. And we see well, South Korea, we see China, we see Russia, all of them moving in different ways to relax that pressure. So it leaves diplomacy. <clears throat> In my mind, that's what we have to focus on. And I think there are a lot of things that we can offer. We need to be looking at diplomatic relations, ending the travel ban, encourage an engagement in a number of different ways. It should be part of that as, as a process. And we should play the long game. I think my hope here is to see a North Korea that is transformed. Today, uh, one of the things that clearly matters most to North Koreans and what the leadership fears is access to information. When I visited back in, uh, I visited twice. I was there in 1992, a very different North Korea, and I was there a couple of years ago. But the one thing they're really nervous about are flash drives. Uh, defectors tell us that most North Koreans have seen at least some South Korean TV. And the point is, all you have to do is see a South Korean soap opera, and you know that the regime has lied to you for your entire life. Now, when I went in, they made me kind of list my customs, you know, list all my stuff, and they included two flash drives that I use as backup, and I had to put those on the form because they want to make sure I take them out. You know, they don't want those kind of things left behind. So this is one where I think over the long term, we gain by having more people travel there. We gain by anything that we can do to try to get ideas and people in because every American they meet, I've talked to people at NGOs, for example, where they say, 
they have con contact with patients over time. The first time they're nervous and scared, doing things, for example, drug-resistant TB, a, a group called Christian Friends of Korea. Heidi Linton uh, was head of that, and she said, you know, the first time they meet, the person's very nervous. The next time, they want them there because they know they are being helped in ways their government cannot help them, which tells them they've been lied to because, you know, for years they've been told Americans are threatening and dangerous, and now all of a sudden they have one trying to save their life. So I think this is part of that process. We have to be looking at strategies here. And the question as to what to do as everything breaks down, as people might fear, is we go to deterrence. That, uh, and I think we also have to be looking at uh, a troop presence in our relationship with South Korea. Now, this is obviously an issue uh, that matters, our relationship with the ROK. It's one that matters to people here on the Hill. There's been ex concern expressed that perhaps uh, you know, President Moon is a little too you know, uh, willing to make concessions to the North. But I think it's important to realize that from a South Korean standpoint, reconciliation is in fact existential. The Americans view uh, reconciliation as a useful tool to denuclearization. From a North Korean standpoint, from South Korean standpoint, there are two issues that face you. One is the capability of North Korea. Second is their willingness to use it. So trying to change an environment and you know, move a North Korea to a place where it is much less likely to consider military action is, again, extraordinarily important. And it matters an awful lot more to people where your capital is about 30, 35 miles from the DMZ than it matters to that great nation across the ocean where the war would, be, would not be over here, as we were told. As the current administration seems to be undertaking a controlled retreat from free trade with certain parts of the world, former congressman and Cato adjunct scholar Jim Backus believes there are relevant lessons to be taken from John Stuart Mill and his views on trade. Backus spoke at the Cato Institute in February. In terms of American leadership in trade, in my view, um, our leadership currently is a failure. I'm not one who assigns that failure entirely to our current president or to those who are enabling him. Uh, they certainly deserve a share and a goodly share of the blame. But in truth, I, I see our failure of leadership as uh, including both the executive and legislative branches of our federal government and uh, both of our national political parties. This failure of leadership is um, accommodated. Uh, it is made possible, I think, by our failure of an understanding about our premises in trade, about why it is we trade in the first place, and as Craig sets out, how trade fits into our broader goals as a nation. I tend to uh, go along with what uh, are commonly called uh, the classical liberal thinkers, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, others. That's one reason why I'm here as a scholar at Cato. So I go back and read them from time to time, along with uh, you know, current OECD and WTO reports and law review articles and the like. And I think it would really be helpful if um, everyone in the current administration and everyone in the Congress would sit down and take a few minutes to read the dozen or so pages uh, that... Uh, John Stuart Mill uh, included 150 years ago as chapter 17 of his Principles of Political Economy. Because there he talked about what's truly at stake in trade. There he talked about the different kinds of gains we make from trade. And in looking at uh, how he uh, characterized those gains, we can see a lot of what is missing in our current thinking about trade in America 
that is contributing to our failure of American leadership. Mill saw three different kinds of gains from trade to a country. First were direct gains, basically the material gains that uh, we derive from importing cheaper products. It leads to a more efficient employment of the productive forces of the world. That's his fluent phrase, not mine. Note that he focused on imports. When was the last time you heard any politician of either party in our country speak of importing as a reason to trade? I've never heard any other politician in this country uh, speak in those terms uh, since uh, I think the Carter administration. Uh, when I was a young trade negotiator working for a man named Ruben Askew when he was USTR. Yet almost any economist uh, would tell you that the reason to trade is to import. I think the fact that we dismiss imports in our public debate about trade and focus solely on exports uh, is one of the reasons for the failure that Craig describes in his current analysis of where we stand in U.S. trade policy. Uh, this tends to make us uh, mercantilist in our thinking. It tends to encourage protectionist thought. Uh, it tends to make us want to close our markets for imports because uh, we devalue imports um, often by ignoring them in our debate. Mill saw, secondly, uh, a, another kind of gain from trade, indirect gains. And, and these indirect gains from trade that he saw are often also dismissed, ignored, devalued in the American national debate. They are also devalued in our assertion of our trade policy. What are they? The indirect gains from trade, Mill explained, are those that, uh, by virtue of uh, creating more competition, lead to more productive processes in production. In other words, what we would call competitiveness. Because we trade, because we benefit from competition that comes from trade, whether it's the other law firm down the street or the producer of some product on the far side of the world that we import from there to here, in trading, we are more competitive. And when we close our borders to trade, we deny ourselves the benefits of competition, and in doing so, we become less competitive. Ultimately, our economy does not grow, it shrinks. And in terms of trade policy, by focusing so much of our uh, public interest on areas in which we can no longer compete, we incur opportunity costs by denying ourselves the benefits that we could derive if we focused on other areas of our economy. As one example, 75% of US GDP is trade and services. 90% of the economy of my state of Florida is trade and services. In 1994, we were able to conclude as part of the WTO agreement, a general agreement on trade and services. It's been helpful. Uh, it is a good agreement. But it's far from what it should be, and we have failed to add to it in the quarter of a century since. There are many reasons, but one is we focused our energies on trying to 
deny ourselves the benefits of competition in other sectors of trade. There's only so much political capital that a trade negotiator has in coming to the negotiating table. Lastly, third, Mills said, and I quote him here, but the economical advantages of commerce are surpassed in importance by those of its effects which are intellectual and moral. What did he mean by that? There he was talking about the intangible benefits from trade that we cannot touch, but nevertheless enhance our society, benefit our country, and thus should be a focus of American leadership. The contact we have with people from other places, people who live differently, think differently, have different cultures, have a different point of view. This causes us to re-examine our own way of looking at the world, and it leads to creative thinking. Throughout history, as Craig points out along the way in his book, more trade has always been accompanied by more freedom of thought. And this has been derived by the questioning that comes from meeting and communicating with other people who offer a different point of view. And this is not even discussed in Washington as a benefit from trade. But when you look at what's happening in the world now, economically and otherwise, this is something that is missing. Communication, as Mill said, is one of the primary sources of progress. Communication is necessary. What are the impediments preventing so many people in the United States today from securing steady work, a secure retirement, and the ability to provide for their families along the way? In his new Cato book, The Inclusive Economy, scholar Michael Tanner details his vision, which includes reforming the criminal justice system, curtailing the war on drugs, bringing down the cost of housing, reforming education to give more control and choice to parents, and making it easier to bank, save, borrow, and invest. He spoke at a Cato Policy Perspectives event in Naples, Florida. Let me begin in terms of talking about poverty, but just pointing out the fact that despite some of what you hear about how stingy we are as a country, we spend an enormous amount fighting poverty in this country. Uh, federal government alone has more than 100 different anti-poverty programs about 70 of which provide benefits directly to individuals, and the remainder provide benefits to poor communities. And on these programs, the federal government spends roughly $700 billion last year. And state and local governments kicked in another $300 billion, meaning we spent about a trillion dollars fighting poverty last year. And since 1965, when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we've spent about $26 trillion in real dollars fighting poverty. And the question is, what have we gotten for this money? Now, the fact is, we've actually have reduced poverty levels significantly by the various definitions of what poverty is. We've actually lowered poverty rates significantly. I mean, even the federal government can't spend a trillion dollars a year and not accomplish something. You, I mean, you could fly over the country in an airplane and shovel a trillion dollars out of the back of it and actually reduce poverty. I mean, so. But is that really enough? I mean, is that all we should do? If you look at sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you see this down at the bottom, there's, the, you know, food and shelter, stuff like that, and we do a pretty good job of providing that. But at the top of that pyramid is, you know, people who are becoming fully actualized human beings. Human flourishing, the idea that people should thrive and be able to achieve everything that they can do with their talents and abilities, that they should be self-sufficient, that they should have control over their own lives and their own destinies. And I defy you to go to some place like Lauderdale Lakes or to uh, Sandtown in Baltimore or East Fresno, California, 
or Owsley, Kentucky, the poorest neighborhood in a community in, a, in America, and look at folks in those communities and say, are they thriving? Are they achieving everything they can? Are they masters of their fate? And the answer would clearly be no. So I wanted to look at something different and say, is there a better way that we can fight poverty in this country than what we've been doing, which is simply throwing money at the problem? And I started at the beginning in this book, and I said, look, why are people poor? I mean, you wouldn't, uh, you know, if you were a doctor, you wouldn't start treating people until you actually diagnosed their illness, right? So I wanted to look at why people are poor, and I found that there were basically two competing theories on the left and the right about poverty. On the right, people basically said it's the poor's fault. They blame the poor. And they said the poor make bad choices, bad decisions. There's this culture of poverty. And they point to particularly something called the success sequence, in which looks at it and says, look, and this is true, if you finish high school and then you get a job and you don't have children until you get married, your chances of being poor are very slim. All of those are true individually and as a whole, if you do all three of those things, the likelihood of being in poverty are very, are, are very, very slim. So they look at these and they say, okay, clearly the poor are making bad choices and bad behavior. They're, they're not doing these things and that's why people are poor. The left looks at poverty and says, if the right blames the poor themselves, the left says, no, we blame society. And they look at things like racism and gender-based discrimination and economic dislocation and say these larger societal issues, these systemic issues, if you will, that's what ultimately leads to poverty. That if you look at the abysmal history we have in this country of treating people of color and women, you could say that those things contribute to where people are today and leave people behind, leave people in poverty. So I asked, which of these is correct? And ultimately, I concluded that both were to some degree, and that neither was to a large degree. I mean, clearly, the right has a point that you can't strip poor people of agency and pretend that their decisions don't matter, that there are no consequences to their actions, that they are nothing but chaff blown by the wind, permanent victims of society, and nothing they do ever matters. That's an incredibly demeaning way to treat the poor. But you also have to take into account the context in which choices and decisions are made. What, uh, what economists refer to as con the constraints on our decisions. And the simple fact is, if you're a poor black child growing up in inner city Baltimore, you face a very different level of circumstances than if you are a white kid growing up in the suburbs of Chevy, Ch in Chevy Chase, Maryland, let's say. You know, if you live in an area where there are no jobs, and their schools are terrible, and the police hassle you every time you step foot outside your door, and you look around and you say, if people really do study and they do all these things and they behave exactly like they're supposed to, they're still going to face all sorts of discrimination and maybe they're not going to get hired for that job and they're still going to get arrested for things that, a, that white kids wouldn't get arrested for. You're going to behave and make very different choices. So both of these have something to them. But both of these are also missing a much bigger point and a much bigger villain in the debate. And as I look more and more into this, I found that the real problem wasn't the poor themselves, and it wasn't society, it was the government. And that if we really wanted to fight poverty in this country, what we should be doing is tell the government to stop making people poor. So what I laid out in the book was five areas where I thought that we could implement libertarian solutions to government policies that are pushing people into poverty. These were number one, criminal justice reform. The fact is that our criminal justice system is prejudiced against low-income people and people of color at every step from the top to the bottom. And that this has a significant impact on poverty that you can commit an offense, something that shouldn't even be an offense, when you're young and end up with a criminal record that 20 or 30 years later is following you around and preventing you from getting a job. That you can simply look at the number of young black men who are in the criminal justice system who are basically taken out of the job market, taken out of the marriage pool, if you will. William Julius Wilson suggests there's a million and a half young black men or either in jail, probation, or have a criminal record that renders them unemployable or unmarriageable. 
Now, conservatives have a long time pointed out that poor women shouldn't have children if they're not married. And they say, we need to encourage marriage. Who the heck are these women supposed to marry? It's not like there's this giant pool of would-be computer geniuses that are sitting out there waiting to marry them. If you take them, if you take the men in these communities and you lock them up for something like having marijuana, or my God, remember Eric Garner in New York who was killed because he sold an untaxed cigarette. If we lock people up for things that shouldn't be crimes and we tag them with a criminal record for the rest of their lives, we shouldn't be surprised that we create large pools of poverty. Scholars at Vanderbilt University estimate that if we had criminal justice reform in this country, we could reduce the poverty rate through that step alone by 20%. The Cato Institute is proud to announce freedom Art as the Messenger, its inaugural art exhibition that will be open to the public April 11th through June 14th of this year. The art exhibition is an outgrowth of Cato's long-held dedication to spreading the ideas of freedom and championing civil discourse. Each piece invites the viewer to explore the beliefs and ideas of freedom from new, personally crafted vantage points. For more information and to see a selection of art, visit cato.org slash artmessenger. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.